reading, you know what, I'm going to read chapter 117 through chapter 2. I know. Let's pray. Our blessed God, we do thank you for this great prayer, this great psalm of Jonah's here in Jonah chapter 2, a hymn of distress, but also one of confidence in the steadfast love of the Lord, the confidence that salvation belongs not to Jonah, but to the Lord. Help us, Lord, to see this great salvation in this text. Amen. Jonah one seventeen through the end of chapter 2. Hear the word of God. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. This evening we enter into Jonah chapter 2, and we find Jonah in a bit of a pickle, don't we? He's in the belly of a great fish, and outside the fish is a body of chaotic waters. He's having a, a whale of a time, as they say. I couldn't resist. But joking aside, he's not in an enviable position. You wouldn't look at him in that great fish and say, yeah, I want to be there. That's what I, that's what I want to do. All of us image bearers, all of us earthbound image bearers may like the water, might even like great fish even, and have salt life on our trucks or cars. But to be cast overboard is not our favorite. And to be fish food seems counterproductive to being human, doesn't it? We don't have to be literally in a great fish, however, for Jonah's experience to resonate with us. And so this chapter recounts God's gracious deliverance from the prophet's sin-producing distress. The prophet cries out in distress for salvation from the pits of Sheol. Now, from chapter 1, verse 17, Jonah found himself in the belly of a great fish because God had put him there. Consider the context of his cry, this, which makes up most of chapter 2. This cry, this prayer, comes after the fact, of course. I, mean, I doubt that Jonah has pen and, and parchment 
in the belly of this great fish, writing this beautiful, inspired psalm, this prayer. And there is some debate on whether or not Jonah died and then was revived by God, and I can see a case being made one way or another. But I don't think we can say definitively that he did, in fact, die, though that does remain a possibility. If he didn't die, we ask, well, how did he survive? He was in the fish for three days. Did he survive from fresh fish as it came in the the great fish? Did he survive from, from the water that would pour into the great fish's mouth? I don't know. What we do know is that his life was either preserved by God or revived by God. He was sustained by God. And he's crying out. He's crying out for himself here. The focus in this chapter is not the living arrangements in the fish. It is his cry. It is Jonah's cry. This is a a cry that is caused by distress. This is not a cry of praise. You cry out in praise to the Lord, though there is that towards the end. But this is mainly a cry that is induced by the stress that he experiences, by the great affliction, the watery distress that is overwhelming him. It's a distress signal that he is sounding for himself. Now, we can easily imagine the distress of being in the raging waters, just being in a pool when people are all around you and, and splashing and making waves around you. That can be scary, can't it? Of course, this is next-level chaotic waters, isn't it? Being in a big fish may seem like a cool experience, but only for a second. Being swallowed up by a large sea creature, whether it's that magical Leopleurodon, or your run-of-the-mill whale, is not on our Amazon wish list. This is not a bucket list item, is it? We don't envy Jonah. He is distressed. But why is he distressed? Why is he crying out? He's crying out because he's been cast out. More than being in a foreign belly is being cast out. Look at verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, And the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And you recognize Psalm 42, verse 7 in this text. We looked at this a handful of weeks ago. Verse 7 of Psalm 42 says, Deep calls deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. What is most distressing to the prophet here is that he has been cast out by his God. The one who is supposed to see eye to eye to him who is his vision, the one who is supposed to be singing from the same sheet of music, now laments here in this prayer. And we read in verse 4 that he was driven away from God's sight. But we might gently say to Jonah once he's drying on the shore, yeah, Jonah, but you drove yourself away from God. You remember, Jonah, don't you, that you're the one who fled from him. He wasn't running away from you. You drove yourself out. You cast yourself out. You wanted to get as far as as possible as you can from God. Nevertheless, he feels the 
affliction, the, the heavy hand of the Lord disciplining his prophetic son, he, he feels that. And so his soul, his spirit is troubled. And it is troubled not because God is a mean and nasty God. He's troubled because of the effect of his own sin, of fleeing from his God. So he's crying out because he's distressed, because he doesn't have, he doesn't seem to have hope. And just one more element to this, uh, to this, this prayer here is the cause of his own death. Now, whether it's a literal death or a metaphorical death, I, don't, I mean, I don't know. But Jonah is, is on the verge of death or he's dying here. And what is the cause of this? It is himself. He is ensnared by these inescapable weeds. He's all tangled up. And you can picture him at the bottom of the seafloor, just gasping for air and with all his energy to swim up to the surface being thwarted by the sea's foliage. Because of his sin, he has brought death upon himself. He is now paying the price for his own sin. He is the cause of his own death, or at least near-death experience. He brought all of this on himself. Of course, he wouldn't be in this fish. He wouldn't have been cast overboard. He wouldn't have been in a boat going the opposite direction if he hadn't disobeyed the Lord. And so all of this, we can say, is, yes, sovereignly directed by God, but, it, but he is responsible for his sin here. Nevertheless, there is hope amid his distress, isn't there? Look at verses 4 and 6. We see there is a beautiful yet. Sometimes in Scripture, you'll have but or yet and these are wonderful contrasts. Verse 4, it says, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Or verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And so he is driven out, but he is soon drawn back in. As he even descends, his eyes ascend, his eyes look upward, his eyes look to the temple. Now, why the temple? Because the tabernacle and later the temple is the presence, is the, the, the best symbol of God's blessed presence, of his communion, of his fellowship, of his word. And you recall that Jonah tried to get away from that blessed presence of God. So now as he is being slowly restored, his eyes look to the exact place that he needs to, God's wonderful presence. He had fled from God's presence, so now he looks to God as the place of refuge. Rather than hiding from God, now he will hide himself in God. As his eyes are toward the temple, his life finds restoration. He is even brought to life from the pit. That's what verse 6 says. It was God who cast him out. It was God who drove him out. And so it will have to be the God who disciplines Jonah who will be the one to bring him back to life. Look at verse 7, how beautiful this verse is, how he remembers the Lord 
at his death. He says, when, I, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah does what many, sadly, neglect to do as their lives are fading away, as their bodies are, are fainting, as their bodies near death. Too many don't have a thought of God as it is almost their time to go. But here, someone who should feel ashamed for his rampant disobedience, his outright denial of the Lord's will, doesn't stick to his guns. He doesn't continue to be embittered. He doesn't continue to be angry at the compassion of the Lord. He remembers the Lord. At the time when he is nearing death, he remembers the Lord, something that all of us ought to do every single day, of course, but perhaps even most especially as we are taking our final breaths, our eyes are to be on target, on the temple, on the heavenly place, rather than saying, where are you, Lord, as his breath slows down. He knows the Lord to be at his side, and he knows the Lord has always been good to him. And where does he put his hope? You see in verse 8 that he doesn't put his hope in idols, but in the Lord. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. If you want to have hope, if you want to have the hope of steadfast love, of that never-ceasing covenant love of the Lord, you have to go to the Lord, he's saying. You cannot look to vain idols. You cannot look to those things that do not bring true satisfaction, lasting peace, real wisdom, you must look only to the Lord. Granted, Jonah disobeyed, but he hadn't given himself over to idolatry. He had confessed in the first chapter that he fears the Lord. He wasn't messing around with idols, though his view of the Lord was, was accurate and that frustrated him. He had an accurate sense. He had a true knowledge of who the Lord was. As we'll see later on in chapter 4, he knew that the Lord was compassionate and gracious, and that's why he didn't want to go, because he didn't think that the Ninevites deserved it. And of course they didn't. But why does he think that he does? So he didn't give himself to idolatry. He knew that the steadfast Love was not in the gods that those Gentile mariners had been praying to in, jo in Jonah chapter 1. And so for us, even as we fade away, our trust is not to be in the things of the world. Our trust is not to be in the temporary delights, those pleasures that are good gifts from God for us, but they're never to replace the good giver. They're never to replace our God. And just whatever those are, and they abound in what they could be. It could be a person, it could be a thing. We're never to place our ultimate trust in any of those things. And certainly not in any false gods. Because those gods don't save. Those idols are weak. They don't even exist. And Jonah is, is clear here, at the very end, salvation belongs to the Lord. 
He says in verse 9, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. This is the right conduct. That This is what, this is what the Gentile mariners had done once they um, had committed to worship the Lord. It says in the, at the end of Jonah 1 that they had uh, made vows, they made sacrifices, that they had feared the Lord exceedingly. And so now finally Jonah is back on track and he's saying salvation belongs to the Lord. What a way to end your life. If this is his last, if these are his last words, these are the greatest last words that anyone could utter. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Not to Jonah, not to the Ninevites, not to the Israelites. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It was the Lord who saved those sailors by calming the storm. It will be the Lord in the next chapter who saves the Ninevites when they repent of their sin. It is now the Lord who saves Jonah from drowning. From start to finish, the Lord saves his people. No one else saves. No one else can save. They're all false saviors. They're all weak saviors. And this fact should lead us to ask what the role is that that great fish played. Was this fish used for judgment or for salvation? Did God send this fish to swallow up Jonah to judge Jonah or to swallow up Jonah to save Jonah? Was the fish used for judgment or for a rescue? Well, surely salvation is in view here. Surely rescue was the, was the fish's usefulness. Salvation from the watery chaos that would have consumed Jonah. Jonah would have drowned if he hadn't been swallowed up by the fish. It was the Lord who appointed the fish in chapter 1, verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And it was the Lord who spoke to that fish to direct it his way in chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Ironically, then, this fish was more obedient to the voice of the Lord than was Jonah. In fact, everything and everyone up to this point has been more obedient to the voice of the Lord than Jonah, the prophet. The the mariners were more obedient. They heard the voice of the Lord, they trembled, and they feared him and made sacrifices and vows and trusted in the Lord for salvation. The ship threatened to break under the hand of the Lord. It obeyed the Lord. This fish obeyed. The Ninevites in chapter 3 will obey the voice of the Lord. Just at a brief message of repentance or impending doom. Everyone is on board before Jonah really is. Nevertheless, in this great stomach of salvation, Jonah prays to his God. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. One man commented, The whale became a house of prayer for the prophet, a harbor for him when shipwrecked, a home amid the waves, a happy resource at a desperate time. Dear ones, when our salvation is tied to the Lord, there is always hope regardless of the affliction. Some of you know 
how for a time you ran away from God, how you, you sought refuge in everything but God, in, in anyone but God. And by grace, didn't you learn that those temporary pleasures never truly satisfied you? You thought that you were having a great time. You thought that that gift from God would truly satisfy, that it would numb your pain, that it would fill your heart with joy. But it, it didn't last because it was never created to last, to satisfy you for an eternity. Only your Creator, your Savior, can do that. And perhaps even now, if you've run away from God, you've run away, if you've run away from God, you must know that you will not find true refuge in whatever it is, in whomever that is. Or maybe like Jonah, that refuge is in your own sense of how justice is to be repaid. Perhaps you think, if only my offender will repent, then I will finally be at peace. I cannot be at peace until he repents, asks for forgiveness. Or perhaps you think, if only my offender will be punished now, then I will celebrate God's justice. But until then, whether God is just is still a question in my mind. Now, if we were speaking to Jonah, as I said earlier, we'd be right in saying, Jonah, you did this. You caused the distress. You were cast out only because of what you did. You disobeyed. You died because of what you did. And if someone were to, to speak to us this way, when we have clearly sinned, where we have clearly fled from God, who can stand? None of us would be innocent None of us would be righteous on our own strength, on our own works. We're all guilty. Even as Jesus says in Luke 17 that we are at most unworthy servants doing our duty. And even so, we can say with hearts full of faith and thanksgiving, my Father loves me more than I love my sin. Lord, never leaves us nor forsakes us. He continually pursues us even when we flee from Him. Because those things to which we flee will never truly satisfy. And the Lord knows that. And the Lord bears with our stupidity, with our folly, with our impatience, with our joylessness. He bears with all of these things because He loves us. And we are most assured of this love from our Father in heaven because of where Jesus went. Jonah went down into Sheol. Jesus, on the cross, was in Sheol. He cries for himself. Similar to what Jonah had done, Jonah cried for himself. Jesus, on the cross, Hearkening back to Psalm 22, you remember, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Jonah cried out to the Lord, and the Lord answered his prayer by giving him a fish. But the sun 
cried out to his father and was met with divine silence so that you and I would be saved. So Jesus does cry for himself, that cry of dereliction, the cry of forsakenness on the cross. But mainly he's crying for us. He's crying for sinners. He didn't cry out on account of his own supposed sin because he was a spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had no sin, has no sin. He is the perfect, righteous lamb of God. He cried out for you and me. He cried out because of our sin. What caused his distress? Two things. One would be our sin. To have our heinous sin put upon him, to put upon his shoulders, the innocent and righteous Son of God, to bear the weight of wickedness, of unholiness, impurity, lawlessness, the one who kept the law of his Father perfectly to bear all of that lawlessness was truly distressing. It was so contradictory to his own nature. He knows no sin, but he was made to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. But another factor to his distress is what the father would do because he was bearing the weight of wickedness. Because his father is just. Because our God is the judge of all the earth and will always do right. The father must judge that sin that was upon the shoulders of Christ. And that's why we can hear in Isaiah 53.10, that it pleased the Lord to crush his son. It was pleasing to the Father in heaven to crush the son because of that weight of wickedness that was on his shoulders. But that too was a distress. It was distressing for the son. Our sin, the Father's wrath, brought great distress of soul. And so ultimately the cause of death was you and me. Yes, Jesus gives up his life willingly, but there's a reason he came to this earth, and that was because you and I are sinners. It was our sin that put him up on that cross. Yes, no one forced him to it, but out of love, he allowed himself to be put on that cross. Not because... He did anything wrong, but because of us, we are his murderers. We are the reason he died. And there was no fish for Jesus. There was no stomach of salvation, but there was just the cross. And the Father allowed the Son to die, the excruciating death. Even though the son was troubled in spirit, his hope remained fixed on his father. The son knew that the father had given him all of the elect, 
And therefore, Paul can say of Jesus that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. So even though his spirit was troubled, he still had joy. He still had joy because he loved the Father, because he knew that this is why he came to earth, and because he loved you and me. And this is in part what the sign of Jonah points to, namely to the death of Christ. But the sign is more than a pointer to Jesus' three-day death. You know, the book of Jonah doesn't end with chapter 2. That would be a pretty incomplete narrative. It's fine. He, he finishes with the prayer, salvation belongs to the Lord, and then you have the Lord uh, bringing the, uh, the fish to vomit Jonah out on the shore, and you say, okay, what, what next? Of course, Jonah's ministry goes on in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Jonah's ministry was incomplete without this revival, without his restoration, without this renewed life to serve the Lord with the message of salvation. Jonah being washed onto the shore is really just God pressing the reset button for Jonah. Not that there was plan B for God. Jonah's disobedience was part of plan A in God's eternal decree. But saying, okay, Jonah... You didn't do it right the first time. Let's get you back on track and now go. The, the call for him remained. You need to still go to, to Nineveh. You need to proclaim their impending destruction and proclaim that they need to repent. And so Jonah still had a mission that he had to fulfill. And he couldn't fulfill this mission until God restored him. Likewise, the crucifixion is not a terminus point in the ministry of Jesus. That's not all. That might sound blasphemous to, to many Christians, that the, that the cross is not all. Now, we are boasting only in the cross of Christ, no doubt about that. But the story of Christ doesn't end at the cross. Of course, you know that. That's why we are worshiping here on the Lord's Day, because it was the day on which he was raised from the dead. But when we talk about the ministry of Jesus, we talk about the two phases of his ministry. We talk about his, his estate of humiliation and then his estate of exaltation. And he, was, he humbled himself to the point of servant, and he died, even death on the cross. He humbled himself. He, was, uh, he became flesh, and he lived among us, and he subjected himself to the law of his father, and he lived in a world full of thorns and thistles, and he suffered, and he died. And he was buried, and he descended to hell. That's his humiliation. And his exaltation begins with his resurrection. He is now exalted. He was raised from the dead, and he ascended to the right hand of his father. And he is seated at the right hand of his father. And he is even now ruling and reigning in our hearts, yes, but over all of this world. He is the king, and he is even now subduing all of his and our enemies. He is doing so no longer in his state of humiliation, but in his state of exaltation. He is no longer the humbled servant. He is the exalted king of glory. 
And as the exalted king of glory, he still has a ministry through, in the first century, the prophets and apostles, and now through the teachers, through ministers of the gospel. And so he is even now working mightily in and through gospel ministers, in and through you all. As you share the gospel, hearts are converted, and all because he was raised from the dead, because the cross was not the terminus point. And so let us always prize the death of Christ and always boast in his crucifixion, but let us never forget that his death is significant mainly because he was raised from the dead. Jesus' rescue from death, as seen in his resurrection, is actually what vindicated him for the message of salvation in him alone. That's how Paul begins his letter to the Romans. And this is why the psalmist says of the Son, You, God, will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Because the death of the Son was not the end-all, be-all. There was more to be done. The Son wouldn't see corruption, because he was a spotless Lamb of God. He was the perfect servant. He was the Messiah. Jesus' hope doesn't lie in his death alone, but in his rising from the dead, that we would rise with him one day too. Here is our hope. He is our hope. So, dear ones, hope in the Savior who drank the ocean of the Father's wrath for you. He did so on the cross. And hope in the Savior who has been raised from the dead for you. One commentator speaks this way of Hebrews chapter 12. He says, do you feel that your cup of opposition is a little fuller than that of some of your fellow Christians? Then look away to the cup which Christ drank. Here is the divine antidote against weariness. Christ meekly and triumphantly endured far, far worse than anything you are called on to suffer for his sake. Yet he fainted not. When you are weary in your mind because of trials and injuries from the enemies of God, consider Christ, and this will quiet and suppress thy corrupt propensities to murmuring and impatience. Set him before the heart as the great example and encouragement. Example and patience, encouragement in this blessed issue. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Such comforting words. For those of us who feel like we can't take any more affliction. For those of us who feel like we can't handle any more stress. We can't handle any more opposition. Whether that's because of our own sin or because of the sins of others. It doesn't compare to what Christ went, to, went through for us. And so find hope, dear ones, in the death of Christ. And find even more hope, beloved, in the resurrection of Christ, your Savior. Let's pray. Our glorious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Christ lived, died, and was raised from the dead for our justification. We thank you that he even now reigns over his creation and is working out all things according to the counsel of his will for his glory and for our good. Again, Lord, instill hope, deeper hope, wider hope in our hearts as we think about what Christ has done and is doing for us and for his grand plan of saving the world and reconciling the world to himself. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen.